Justin, uh, a double thanks to Dumas last week um, for jumping in and sharing with us. Um, if you did not catch his sermon, it's an incredible, he, it just his testimony and the vulnerability that he showed. If you didn't find yourself in there, I, I think there's, there's uh, 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 the ability when Dune shares the things that he's struggling with and walking through, it gives us the ability uh, to be able to connect and, and, and feel like it's okay for us to walk through our own processes and, and our own journey in these um, in the faith walk. And so I just want to say thank you for Doom and his vulnerability last week. And he just did a great job. I mean, just, just brought an incredible message last week. So it's so good to, to have him jump in there. Um, all right. Well, uh, you all picked a great day to come. If you're new here, uh, we are starting a brand new series called The Bible and Sex. All right. So, so welcome uh, to, to jumping right into the deep end with Common Ground Northeast. Uh, but, but this is what I want to do. I've got a few things I want to frame for us as we move forward. But uh, as, as we do this, I want you to know that we're going to be covering this over the next six weeks. We tried to share, you know, get, get the emails out to the um, children's ministry, anyone who had kids in children's ministry. And then I sent out a video earlier just letting you know um, the, the nature of the topic. So uh, my, my, uh, I deem this a PG-13 topic. So uh, you can kind of gauge whether or not you'd feel comfortable having your uh, sons and daughters in this during that moment. Um, and then I'll, I'll give a little bit more information on that here in just a second. But this is, this is how I kind of wanted to, to start this. Um, as I look back on my personal history, there are a few key moments in my life that I can, as, as, a, like, as an adult, look back on and realize that that moment shaped me somehow. It had some level of formation on me, uh, and, and I thought the, that there were four stories of moments that shaped my view of sexuality that I thought were important um, for, uh, for our purposes today. And so I want to share those four moments with you, kind of rapid fire one after the other. The first one is um, I was, uh, li- we were living with a, a relative, and that relative had HBO. And so at third grade, I remember we were watching, it was a, like some horror film that we were watching, all of us, all the, the uh, cousins and us, we were all kind of in this uh, giant sleeping area on the floor. And um, after the movie was over, uh, then this uh, little documentary came on. And it was kind of HBO's attempt during that time to give a little bit of a uh, like a documentary on the history and the modern conversation around sexuality. And essentially what was taking place inside of that, and I, the one, I just remember this guy, uh, they, were, they were interviewing a guy at a beach, and he's very uh, California, I don't know, for lack of a better term, and they're like, hey, what do you think? He's like, yo, bro, I don't know if, uh, uh, if anyone says they're not doing it, they're lying to you. I'm like, okay, what is this guy talking about? And he was talking about a reference um, to pornography and masturbation. Then it, the, the, the show went on to kind of normalize casual sexuality. Um, and and what, what I want you to see is this is like one of my first moments where I can look back and say, I was taking in some form of media, some form of teaching, some form of uh, persuasive presentation to try to get me to believe what they believed about sexuality. They were trying to form or shape me to some extent on my ideas, persuade my thoughts on what I believe about sexuality. That's the first time I can remember that um, happening, at least at that level, um, in third grade. The second one was a high school coach. Um, and, and this high school coach, I, I was uh, just jumping into um, high school as a freshman. I joined the football team. And um, so, so what happened is, you know, before you start your practices, you got to do all your stretches and all of these things. And one of these stretches, uh, I mean, it was easy, it was easy game for someone to attach a sexual innuendo just because of the posture of the stretch itself. And what happened was not the students, 
But the coach, like you expect students to say dumb things, but the coach named this stretch after the sexual position it resembled, and then for then on through the rest of the year, that was the name of this stretch, and when he said it, that meant that was the stretch we do. Later on, I remember our first game, and he's, um, if you haven't been in a locker room kind of situation or one of those pep talk kind of moments, what happened is, you know, you got all of the, the, the guys are, are taking a knee around you in kind of this semi-circle type of thing. He's got the football, and he's pointing it, right, pointing it at people, and he's like, you, like, fiend, make sure no one gets through the front line. Johnson, do this thing, and it's kind of like this hyped up moment, right? And then he goes in and starts giving us his expert advice, um, about, uh, about how we should stay focused over the weekend. And that included, hey, man, you might have some parties and there could be alcohol. What I want you to do is be very cautious, be mindful, right? So you got kind of this, this, this decent advice, but also I think he's just telling us, don't take it too far because I know it's going to happen anyways. And also, you're going to be around some ladies. And so what I want you to do is essentially... Make sure that you prioritize yourself, your future, your goals, because, and this was like the big advice, she won't be around forever. And the underlying premise is she's here for your fun, but nothing else, right? As if high school football was going to be around forever. And what I, do, what I do as I look back at that, this is what I think. I was being discipled by an openly misogynistic person. This guy is the most prominent, probably father figure in my life at that moment, right? Because my dad wasn't in the picture in that situation. And so this is the, 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 the leading authority on sexuality in this moment in my life. And this is how he is discipling me to prioritize my life and not put my future at risk by not being smart with girls. The third one, my mom giving me one of the talks. Now, I had a few of those talks. I'll, I'll say my family was not prudish, um, and so these conversations were um, had openly either in s- some sort of joking manner or um, uh, other reasons, right? But, but, but to my mom's um, wisdom and credit, she just clearly and directly talked to us about issues of sexuality. Even in second grade, I remember drawing pictures of, um, you know, different anatomy to make sure I knew this is what this does and this is how this works um, because I was asking questions about it. And she thought, well, I'm going to tell you so that you don't learn this somewhere else. And so in about uh, 17, 16, maybe, maybe 15, as early as 15, I was, it was after the, the football situation. I remember my mom saying something along the lines of this, like, you're getting older, it's normal and healthy for you to experiment with sexuality. If you have any questions, I'm here, but I want you to know two things. She said, use protection, and the second thing was, if a girl says no, she means no. And then she teared up and leaned in closer and said, if a girl says no, she means no. And that never left my mind. And, and, and again, to my mom's wisdom, you could see something was playing out that was more passionate than just a sexual ethic, but clearly consent was a part of this conversation, and she wanted to make sure that I knew that. Then, number four, I went to church. <laughs> I went to church. And a girlfriend asked me to go, um, and it was the first time I ever heard anyone use this phrase, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. Now, it took me off guard because, in all honesty, I was sleeping with the girl who invited me. And I remember a million questions coming to mind. And I'm like, hold on, like, what, are you second-guessing our relationship? What's happening? Do you believe what they're saying? And she calmly, like, put her hand on my, on my shoulder because 
as far as I'm concerned, I don't care what any of these people think about it. They don't have authority in my life, right? I'm, I'm a visitor. But she does. And she's like, yeah, can you stop talking? We'll talk about this later. But right now, this is not the time to ask me these questions. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can see that she doesn't want me to, to have this conversation right now. And so I start to think through these things. But what I want you to see, as, I, as I'm thinking all these questions and trying to make sense of this, and this is converging with all of the other information that I've had in my history, right, from HBO to my mom uh, to, to coaches, and, and, and that's just a few that I'm able to share in this moment. I'm trying to make sense of this. This was one of the things I learned in that moment that I had never, ever once considered before, that God has an opinion on sexuality. And in this moment that he had an opinion on my sexuality, I had never once even considered, why would God, right? Like, like think if you don't have a context for that, it's just some, you know, it's deity, it's whatever. I don't, I don't know what this person is or how, what I would consider this, but God has a, an opinion on my sexuality. And so if you grew up in the church, you're like, that's youth ministry 101, right? They inundate you with all kinds of crazy information. They give you, make sure that you know all of these different ideas um, that, 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 we'll na- that we now refer to as purity culture, and we'll talk about that next week. But I had this entire framework, this idea of what I thought sexuality was, uh, the ethics surrounding this, what I thought was uh, a measured definition of responsibility, of maturity, of what is healthy and what is not considered healthy, all of it completely developed outside of the church, and then I walk into a church, and for the first time here, God has an opinion on that, and he's asking me to make a correction. It came against what I had been told. Wait, no, 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 that's, maybe you say that to scare the kids who aren't mature enough to understand that, but, but, but really, like, like, this is, like, this is what all healthy people do, right? I've had multiple instances, including my own family, telling me that this is a normal part of, of, of a growing experience, and this is the first time, no, 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 I want you to make a correction in the direction that you are going with your sexuality. And so this is, I, I'd never told anyone this. This was just in my own head. I remember thinking about this. I had committed to go to church for one year. And if it made sense, then I was going to buy in. And if it didn't, I was going to walk away and say, at least I didn't give Christianity a fair shake. So behind the scenes, I had agreed. And one of the first things I hear is this. And the second obvious uh, uh, result of that first uh, understanding that God has an opinion, but also that if I was going to seriously consider following Jesus, it was going to cost me something. I was going to have to surrender something to God, and that did not exclude my view, my framework, my understanding of what healthy, responsible sexuality was. But I also want you to know it wasn't just a correction. Because eventually, as I'm paying attention and hearing this, there's a point where God started to tap me on the shoulder and say, it's not just correcting thinking. Look, you have some pain attached to your history in this area. You have some brokenness that you've picked up along the way, and you have some ideals that aren't quite as healthy as they need to be according to the way I've designed things. And so I felt like God was saying, I don't just want you to surrender or submit for the sake of surrendering and submitting. I want you to come into this because you trust me with this area of your life. And so then hearing that idea, I have something to say, becomes different, right? It's not just change who you are, but it's like, hey, I've got some information that is going to be helpful for you in your life moving forward. And so as we approach this topic, I want us to all to understand that we come into this 
uh, conversation with a history, uh, a, a, a story that you could come up here and tell of things that have happened to you, things that are good, bad, the ugly, all of these different parts. There could be some trauma and some baggage from your history. There's, there's possibly some pain, and there's certainly, if you are aware of it or not, a shaping, a discipleship, a type of spiritual formation that has been taking place either intentionally and of your own design or that you've been taking on through the things around you, throwing their opinions on you about how you should think and, and believe about this. And often it happens without us being aware, so it's, it's not easy to navigate this, but I hope this phrase is a comfort. God has something to say. God has something to say. Are we willing to hear that? In, 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 our, in our beginning of this, my, my hope and my ask of you is this posture. That maybe you like me, I was holding on to that. And I remember my first was like, no, 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 you don't get to talk to me about this. And it had to take a, a bit of time for me to say, okay, Okay, I can trust God in this area. He's been trustworthy here. He's been trustworthy here. I'm starting to learn. You know, I barely know who Jesus is. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, can I trust this God with this part of my life? And maybe you are in here because you are actively seeking for wisdom. You want to know what God has to say for you. Maybe you've had brokenness or, or a need for healing that you openly recognize because you've seen maybe how the world has treaded on you in this area of your life. But again, I want you to hear that God has something to say to you. Will you trust him with this area of your life? Now, before we move forward, we were in the habit of doing a quick reflection time for a few months, and I want to stop here and do that same reflection moment with two questions up on the board behind me. And so I'm going to give you about a minute to just stop where you're at and ask yourself these questions. Process this. What have been the major influences that have shaped your framework for sexuality? All right, what are the major influences that have shaped your ethics or your application? Like I did, I went through my history and was like, okay, what are the four main points? Think of maybe three, two, three, or four over the next minute that you remember like that, good or bad, I don't know, uh, but that shaped me somehow in my view on this area. All right, so I'm going to give you one minute to think of that. And then second, what is your heart posture walking into this topic? Does it feel like a closed thing that you don't want somebody to talk about? Does it seem like you're open? Do you maybe seek information on this and want to know um, possibly what God has to say? Uh, and so let's take one quick minute, and I'm going to let us think on that. It'll be kind of quiet and awkward, but that's okay. Um, let it be quiet and awkward. What are the major influences that have shaped your thoughts? Identify them, and what is your heart posture entering into this? One minute right now. Go ahead and reflect. I should have had that Jeopardy song going on, huh? Would you let me pray for us as we move forward? Yeah, so, Lord, thank you um, <clears throat> that you do have something to say. And that's possible because we know you are good. 
And so, God, whatever wrongs we have incurred, whatever pain, whatever trauma, maybe good things that we've learned along the way, maybe courses we've taken uh, and, and curriculums that we've done, maybe it's the informal things, God, whatever they are, Father, I want to pray that you would make sense of it to us according to your goodness. So, Father, we pray uh, and ask for you to be present in this place as we have this conversation over the next few weeks. And so, Lord, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, as you could imagine, some disclaimers are definitely necessary <laughs> as we go into the next parts of this. There's four things that I want to convey, just four values that I kept in the back of my mind as I was approaching this. Um, and this has really been maybe a two-year-long process, uh, less than that for the direct study and, and trying to kind of prepare for this. Um, but I knew that we were going to probably get into this topic um, about January of this year is when I was trying to work it in. And so these are four values that I wanted us to walk into. I want to have some sensitivity to this topic. I'll give some, some, some definitions to this a little bit as we move forward. Some vulnerability, courage, and compassion. Um, sexual baggage is often some of the most difficult to deal with, right? It's hard to revisit. It's hard to stir it up. The emotions and memories can strike at the core of our formation. And so what I want us to do as we do this is I need you to know a couple of things about me, and then I'm going to say that I have some expectations of you as the congregation on the other side. And so first is my personality, if you have not caught it, tends to err on the side of direct or frank communication, all right? Now, at this point, you either got that and you kind of get that's who I am and you catch my dry humor every once in a while because a lot of times it doesn't get caught. Uh, and you've either like, I don't like this or I'm okay with this person, right? And so, um, I, I, but that tends to be true of me. But what I need you to know is I'm not attempting to be rude in my directness often and I will, I will often then kind of have to come back and say, I don't mean to be like this or that. And so um, I want to temper it during this. That is my intention. But I also want to convey that this doesn't always communicate as directly as my heart communicates. I don't um, also, uh, kind of an assumption about me, I don't embarrass easy on this subject matter. Again, my family did it was not, this was not an off topic. So I know some of you grew up in households where nobody ever talked about this. That was not true in my family household. So I don't, uh, I don't blush easy on this topic. I don't think God does either. And so I plan to be vulnerable in storytelling where I think it's appropriate, like what just happened in the intro today. Um, but there's always this fine line, right, um, where, where it could trigger somebody else's memory of something that they've dealt with that they're um, uncomfortable with. So I want to give you the option that if something happens during our sermon where you're like, man, I just can't handle this right now. I need to step out. Feel free to do that. Um, I would also extend that if there is a need as you hear this for couples therapy, family therapy, individual therapy, we have the, the ability to point you in directions and if finances are a difficulty for you to help offset costs for things like that. And, and, and I say that because I do think having conversations like this could stir up some things that maybe need further, um, more, uh, more processing than what we can do here and even inside of our house churches as those things are going. Um, to that end, though, you're, I, I mean, I'm not going to hesitate saying words that might be um, you know, appropriate to the situation. Even our text today, you're going to hear some words that maybe you're like, oh, can they say that at church? Well, it's even, I mean, it's in the scripture. The second thing moving forward is I'm going to make some assumptions about you. First, if you're in, a, the, the, if you're in this room at this point, you're an adult or you're uh, an adult with a consent uh, uh, or a young adult with some sort of consent with somebody who is okay with you being here. Um, does that make sense? I fumbled those words, but you got me. 
all right? So, so you're okay with the nature of the conversation. And I would add to this to kind of back up, back up what I just said, that you're in a place emotionally right now where you're capable of having it, because that, that's a seasonal thing sometimes, all right? It's not my intention to get you to revisit visit unsolved trauma, um, though that could happen. Um, and so again, if, there, if there's needs that you have outside of the conversations here, please come to us. Um, and I also want to recognize that these are really, really, really complex issues. And we want to dig into this subject because I believe on this topic, easy answers are incomplete answers. All right? And I do believe the church has been guilty of doing that for the last few generations. All right? Not in its entirety, but there's definitely some things to unpack. Again, we'll get into that mostly next week. But these are complex issues, and I hope with everything in me to match those complex issues with a complex level of research, mindful cultural engagement, and the scriptures as we come to them. That is not to say it's without emotion, but there is a lot of study going into these next few sermons. Um, And I ask for your prayer as I'm trying to um, bring those things together. The second assumption is that I want this sanctuary, sanctuary and you all as an audience to embrace an overall tone of safety, compassion, empathy, maybe a little humor to break all of this up here and there, okay? Uh, but some topics that might be foreign, I, always, I think this is always worth saying in, in these conversations, some topics that could be very foreign to you and even like sound so exaggerative that could cause you to maybe even like laugh at things could be somebody's real life lived reality. And so for that reason, I would say guard yourself from those things. Don't jump to those conclusions so, so easy. Uh, there is a different variety of struggles and histories here, and I want this to be a place of safety where people can come and feel like they don't, they don't feel ostracized by the conversation. And if, you, if I say a topic and someone out there handles that with a lack of sensitivity, that's a problem. That's not a safe environment. And so I'm going to expect that we are going to enter into this like uh, with, with that tone of safety, um, with an understanding with each other. And while I might challenge you, I am not trying to ostracize anyone. I want you to know that you're welcome in our church wherever you are in this conversation. We love you and we might disagree. We love you. Amen? I mean, I have to say it with a question mark these days, right? That's not always assumed. And so these are my values sensitivity, vulnerability, and that I'm going to try to be appropriately vulnerable and not act like I've got this thing all together. Sensitivity in that we want to create a safe place. Courage in that sometimes these are difficult and we have to enter into this with the same courage that we entered into the conversation about race and justice. And finally, compassion. That there could be some some hurt and some pain and some history here. And we want to make every opportunity for on-ramps to say we can help resource you and help you in this area if that's something that you need. One last thing, and then we'll jump into the actual <laughs> sermon itself. Um, this is in teaching format. It's monologue by nature. So you might sit there and think, I have a question about that. He didn't address it. I think over the next six weeks, we're going to cover a giant array of things. But if you have a question, email me at office at cgnortheast.com. We have a couple of formats. We have, in between our, our Sunday gatherings on our podcast, um, we, we, we put like little short podcasts, I guess. I don't, I don't know exactly what we call them, the hub podcasts, I think. 
And, um, and so I can answer those there. We're going to hopefully have a panel or some sort of um, testimonial time at the end of this if we can get it all together that will not be aired online because of the sensitivity of the, na- uh, the nature, the sensitivity of that moment. Um, and so there may be a time for Q&A there, but also I might be able to work them into the sermons as well as we move forward. So if you have a question, please let us know. Um, office at cgnortheast.com. Put in the subject line Bible and sex or something along those lines so that we know what it's um, in reference to. All right. Everyone good? Do we need a deep breath? Anyone need coffee again? Like, take a little, little break here. Um, this is where we start our, our journey. Each one is going to build off of each other, so don't try to jump into week five and act like you ca- caught everything, you know, in one, situ- you know, in one um, uh, you know, isolated moment. So please try, if you, if, you, if you catch something, you're like, I'm not fully sure, I know what they're meaning, I'm building, so go ahead and make sure you try to catch every sermon and go back if you have something that you, know, that you, that you think you might have missed. Um, and uh, with no further ado, we're going to open our Bibles to, there's a lot writing on whatever I say next, isn't there? Genesis. 38. Genesis 38. This could possibly be the first and only sermon you have ever heard on Genesis 38. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to read this out loud to you. Most of the chapter from verse 6 to 27. Um, I'm going to stop and do a quick little recap just because the names you can kind of get lost in. But I want to read this out to you. And just pay attention, it's in narrative form. It sits outside of the typical, it's kind of Joseph is dealing with all of his stuff. Then the Bible stops, and uh, there's this one chapter that seems kind of placed in, out of of nowhere, and then it picks up in that narrative in the next chapter. So, So a lot of scholars are like, why is this in here? And I do think there's reasons for it. But this is what the Word of God says. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur. His firstborn and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We won't have time to deal with that ethical issue either, so maybe for another time. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep him from providing offspring for his brother. What, uh, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. I think I skipped one, right? Did y'all catch that? There were two brothers that died, my bad. All right, so we have two. Uh, Let me just read it. I don't want to mess it up. Then Judah, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like the brothers. So Tamar, or Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter Shua, died. When the daughter of Shua died, when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. I, I do realize I did the same thing twice. So, um, but here's the recap: uh, Tamar's husband dies. 
Um, so she goes, and so, so the first, one of these first questions we ask is, what is this kinsman redeemer thing, right? That doesn't exist in our time. Well, it actually does in certain cultures. Um, but, but for us, it's very foreign, right? So there's that question. What is that? Why would we expect it? And how is it ethical, right? And, and, and so one brother dies because he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Then a second brother dies. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Then he, he, they say, the, the dad's like, I don't want my third son to die, so he, he kind of promises something, but then does not give that to uh, Tamar. And so then the dad, Judah, goes down um, near where uh, Tamar is to work with his sheep. And this is where it picks up right here. When Tamar was old, verse 13, when Tamar was old, told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam. Which is on the road to Timnah, for he saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me some, something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in, her, in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After, that, after she left, she took off her veil and put on the widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adalamite, in order to get the pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road to Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute. Then Judah said to her, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this goat, but you did not, didn't find her. Okay, another quick recap. And I apologize. I have new contacts today and I'm having a hard time reading the, the scripture. Um, so, so this is this is um, this is what's going on. He comes down and he's doing business um, with his sheep uh, and goes by her. And what we see is Tamar. Uh, she uh, takes off her widow's clothes that she would normally be recognized, and then she puts on clothes that would be identified typically as a prostitute. Um, now uh, she gets this guy to sleep with her, and, and so we have another ethical dilemma. Like, why is it okay for this guy to just? go to a prostitute, and he seems more concerned about other issues that he might get found out for not fulfilling his, his financial obligation to the prostitute than the fact that he went to a prostitute, right? Which is a little flip-flop in our ethical uh, context that we have today. So he said, let her keep what she has or I'll become a laughing stock. That seems to be of high concern to him. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Then in verse 24, and we'll finish out right here, about three months after, later, Judah was, uh, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. So we now have a double standard, right? Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. That seemed to escalate real quick. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Brilliant setup. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. 
Okay, so there's no way if you didn't walk away from that thinking, what in the heck just happened in that story? And it's in the scripture. I mean, if you don't arrive there, you didn't read this correctly, right? There's almost a shock and awe factor of this chapter being inserted in the middle of Genesis that causes you like, wait, what is going on here and why are they doing that? And why does that seem to be okay? But that doesn't seem to be okay. And now, and now we have this, this full mix-up, this complication of what's going on here. This, this story is the epitome of ethical tension of complications, and, and, and as you're thinking, like, what's this whole redeemer, th- or kinsman redeemer thing, you can just add that to what about the impregnating of servants? What about prostitution? What about incest in the scriptures? What about polygamy in the Bible? And we won't go too far into the details of this one uh, text because we don't have time for it, but what I wanted to do is to use it to surface that it opens up a myriad of conversations around sexual ethics surrounding the topic of Bible and sexuality, and we come at this with off-the-cuff opinions often, right? We just kind of read it, and we're just like, ooh, what? What are you doing? How is that? Oh, you shouldn't have done this. That's what you should have done. And we bring our, our kind of our opinions to this situation. But what I want you to know is that there are a certain set of ethics being applied in this situation. And so my question to you, what values are being utilized in the given situations? Well, I named some of them, right? So what are some ethical dilemmas that you caught as we were reading there. Go ahead and just say them out loud and I'll write them up here. What are some of the ethical dilemmas we identified as we read through that? Not everyone at once. Yeah, lying. Prostitution. Yeah, burned alive, right? I'm going to use the, that. It's, it was an extreme form of execution. Say that again. So there isn't a, a sense of care for that, right? No, I'm going to put it in the other. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Failure to care for those with nothing. I'll just put failure to care just for the sake of time. What else? Lying prostitution, burning alive, failure to care. Family commitments. Tell me more about that. What's the dilemma? What are the family commitments? Uh, You guys got it. Any others? Pride? Yeah, and you use the word pride? Yeah. All right. Usually this side is a little quieter, but now y'all are being quiet. Throw something out. Give me a couple more and we'll move on. Yeah, kinsman redeemer. Yep. I'm going to throw up the double standard because it seems like everyone's okay with the man going to a prostitute but not the woman for being one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, I don't even know what to put on here. Everyone bad. 
Yeah, so promiscuity probably would have been the one word that I should have used there. Yeah. Um, I made a few notes. Anyone else have anything that they, they think needs to be said? I, I, and I asked this question because I do want to know, is there a, a perspective you bring to the table today that you're like, hey, you all seem to care a lot about that ethical issue, but no one seems to want to care to bring up this one. Is there anyone burning with one of those right now? Tamar's future. Can, do you want to give some more on that? Yes, which, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but why is she doing, why is anyone doing this ever, and it's usually for survival, right? No one grows up and says, I want to be a prostitute. They usually end up in a situation, and she uses it for a specific purpose. So what would happen if Tamar's needs were met originally? None of this would have happened, right? Great, anyone else? Yes. Which kind of goes up, I think, is what this was meant to refer to. What are the actual commitments, right? Great. Okay, once again, there's, there's no lack. So, so two things. There's no lack for needing ethical um, decision-making, uh, discernment, Right? And, and, and the second thing is that it's not like we're bringing anything new to the scriptures. Like, look at what's going on here. There's, there's plenty to go around. There's plenty to start the conversation. I thought about using Abram and Sarah and Egypt today, but I felt like this was a little more complicated and rose some other things. But there's a whole another case study you could do on that moment of what are the ethics being used inside of that. And what I want you to see is this wasn't just happenstance. There is a set of ethics being played against each other, a set of values that are being weighed back and forth. Now, whether they are selfish ethics or values, that's for us to kind of take in as we're doing this. But if the ethics um, in general are just the study of, of what the values are that inform or are behind our decision making, then what values are being prioritized in the decisions making that they are making up here? And I, wanna, I want us to kind of back out because we, we do some of the ones I put on here. Selfishness, uh, patriarchy did not get mentioned. Let's, let's put that up here. Can, can I get an amen there? Um, because the whole thing frames probably everything we talk about today, right? It's going to frame every conversation. That, that's always the app running in the background that's, that's, that's benefiting a group and not another, right? So double standard prostitution, okay, everything else we've named up here. From this story, I want you to see um, uh, that there's, this is only one sample set. So if we back out of just this story, right, we can think of ourselves um, uh, uh, on these issues in a couple of different categories. And I'm going to actually crowdsource those as well. So this is the category I want you to do. Not necessarily with Judah and Tamar's situation, but just in general. This, this gets the juices flowing. But now think in general, why does anyone have sex? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What are the reasons or motivations for it? And, and, and I'm going to ask you to list some more of those. What I want you to do is not necessarily think morally correct or incorrect, because we'll get to that second. Ooh. But the first thing I want us to do is to think, what are reasons people have sex? And let's, let's try to just, again, uh, uh, not necessarily what good or bad reasons, negative or positive ones, but just what are any reason that somebody might have sex? What's that? Pleasure. 
loneliness. Hmm. Uh, I messed up this. I'm not a speller. You guys got it. Loneliness. And it, would you name something behind that? What's causing? Or just loneliness good on its own for now? Okay, let's do that. Uh, I heard one other. Yeah, procreation. Any others? Uh, achievement, yeah. Uh, certainly my coach was discipling me towards that, right? Provision. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about um, specifically Tamar's, Tamar's situation. Yeah. Domination. I'm going to put that up here. I, I think if I'm reading that the way you meant it, right? Achievement. Is there a way that you meant that? Oh, oh coming of age. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, you're not an adult until you've blank, right? Okay. Uh, what was the other one? Domination. Power. What's that? Acceptance. Uh, I am repeating them so the people online can hear in case they can't read. Uh, any others? Say it again. Loved. Um, and I'm going to put in here the Hebrew word dode uh, as a teaser for some of the future. Expectation. All right, categ- column two. Anything else? Intimacy. I'm actually going to put that over here. Anyone else burning with anything? Some of the ones we read in the scriptures, maintaining family stability, right? Solidifying, and and I'll use the term covenant making, and I'll say that in a couple of different ways. There used to be, right, arranged marriages, covenant making that were political. And then some are personal, right? And even marriage could be brought into that conversation. But I'll just put covenant making because it was often the consummation or the final part of that covenant, right? Um, I will use the word commodity. Um, Sometimes, if you're in a survival situation, it is a commodity you have by which uh, to trade, right? Not necessarily... uh, a positive one, but you can see that. Um, a couple that I wanted to make sure I included because they were, uh, and feel free to throw in if you have something. Um, the, the next one on my list here is addiction, uh, which was a kind of a new one, but I felt like uh, I was informed by a good resource that I wanted to make sure I at least included that. Um, and then, of course, you have moments of being forced into that, right? And then I'll put in here cultic worship. There are moments of uh, where we see that worshiping a deity includes sexuality. Anything else? I think that's a pretty decent um, idea because once again, I don't know that we can find a comprehensive version of this so much as I want us to identify all of the different things that could be going on in a given ethical situation that many of us just kind of come at, come at it with one or two of them. 
usually based on our past experience, and then we kind of place that or project it onto the given situation and try to decipher it with just a few of the tools in our belt when there could be anywhere, you know, from 20 or so um, that, that could be at play inside of this. The one that we didn't get here, I just want to put that um, comes from the scripture, imaging or representing um, the, the, the body of Christ and, and um, Jesus. All right, so I'm going to call that imaging. All right, that's a pretty good, pretty good list here. Again, not 100% correct, um, but this is where I want you to start exploring some questions. Which of these are biblical and which are not? Which of these come from our culture? Which of them come from a mixture of the Bible and the culture, right? And sometimes the ones that you read in the Bible will still cause you to be like, wait, what is going on there? And then others, they kind of make sense that you would say like, yeah, of course, that's not okay, um, but which ones come from the scriptures and which ones do not? Um, as, as we do that, I want you to think, what are the values behind? Always, always, as we're going through this um, next few weeks, what are the values being applied in this moment behind the scenes? What are the values that, that, are, that are causing them to make the decision that they're making? Um, the second thing is mor- mor- uh, sorry, the morality of sex, which gets a little bit more complicated. What are the values we consider involving sex? So if these are reasons why somebody might have sex, what are the ways we gauge boundaries of appropriate and inappropriate? Where does that come from? Has anyone ever thought of that? So, so let's throw out some ideas. Where do we get our ideas on what is appropriate or inappropriate? What's that? Bible. What else? Media. Family. What's that mean? Economics. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it as economics, but it provides, uh, it, it forces or provides a necessity at times. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Anyone else? Friends. Because a friend's a friend forever. <laughs> I learned that in college. Education. Great. Um, what form? And why are you saying them in particular? Yeah, in particular, yeah. All right. I'll leave it as that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I want to throw out some of the um, possibilities for moralities that we apply, because um, this is kind of where we draw our morality. That's kind of the way this conversation is going. But what about morality that we apply? And sometimes there is a communal obligation, right? There's a sense, um, you know, as we look at this idea, our culture or the traditions that we grow up in, which is a, a family and traditional kind of thing that we deal in, um, some of the possibilities that we do is whether or not someone is okay with it. Um, the idea of consent, right, is one of the, the highest ethics in our, um, and, and uh, at least the, uh, how, how do I say that? Um, the existence of the value of consent, whether it is adhered to or not, is not what I'm commenting on. But that value exists, and we use it. Mutuality, because let me, let me kind of pull this one back. In a patriarchal culture, is consent even possible? Stop for that just a little bit. In a patriarchal culture, 
where things are weighted and framed towards men, even consent itself is inside of the framework of something that is already not benefiting you. In, in the possibility, if, if I would say if that's a woman saying that. I'll say if you're not male. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that go for now. <laughs> we'll come back to it. Um, is it a free choice? There's a few different writers who write on this positional equity, right? So you have the Me Too movement talking about different things. I mean, I said yes, but I didn't want to say yes. I felt like I had to because this was my boss. So authority or boundaries? Who has uh, the ability to create these? Um, I'll, I'll put in here a higher power, right? So it may not necessarily be the Bible for you, but I have a higher power, um, some sort of religious or um, practice that I get from, from that uh, that helps me to frame what is okay and what's not. Okay, um, again, we don't have time to go through all of these, um, but um, I, I, I want to apply those same questions. So which of these are biblical, which are not, which originate from God, which come from the culture, and which are a mixture of those two things? And when we think about these common questions, like I hear, like, what about kinsman redeemer, polygamy, impregnating servants, and incest? Um, how do you justify all these things? And I want to say, kind of my, my first answer to that is I don't try to justify those things. And, and often the Bible isn't necessarily trying to justify them on its own, right? It, it, at times is just saying, depicting the imperfect people of the scriptures doing the things that they're doing, and sometimes they fall short, sometimes they sin outright, and sometimes they're just straight up wicked people, right? And, and, and so one of the things I want us to come at this with is to understand that in multiple scenarios that we read about in the scriptures, it's placed in a narrative that causes us, forces us to think deeply. It isn't necessarily a do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, right? It's a narrative that we have to decipher, and it forces us to seek out what the moral is. And when we approach that, we bring our lenses with us. And we don't fully know the context that they're dealing in, right? Because the same thing that drives somebody into prostitution is the same reason we think it's okay for Aladdin to steal bread. It's the same application. But all of a sudden, things get different there, right? And so, so think about the, all of the different values at play because there's so many more than maybe we would think of. And this is kind of my, my as, as, we're, as we're closing down, this is kind of what I, what I want us to really think through. Uh, begin exercising this muscle. What's the thing behind the thing? What's the value behind the decision as we approach the scriptures? Uh, but I want us to say that when we come to the scriptures, we have our lenses, and we often will try, when, when it doesn't agree, what we try to do is bend the wisdom of God to match ours instead of making and taking our perspectives, surrendering them to a God who is living. He's alive today. He is loving, and he's good. He's the architect of heaven, but we see it over and over, whether you go Judah, Tamar, Abraham, Rahab, the kings, right? All of the kings, every one of the kings, right? Every one of them. And we take our 21st century broken sexual ethics, and we apply it to their first, second, I don't know, pre, pre you know, BCE ethic, and we can point the finger real quick and say, you did it wrong. What do you think you're doing? How did you make that decision? But we don't have a fullness of the way all of this looks and our frameworks are just as broken because we're guilty of it today. So in the end, all of them, all of the, 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 the frameworks we walk into with today operate like Trojan horses, bringing in idols 
harboring brokenness, pain, trauma that we've had, and each one of us can become easily enslaved to the idea that we are entitled to do what's right in our own eyes. And so the beginning of this is, is for us to, to hear, hear and hear this. The, I want you to hear the heart of this phrase. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in their moment of sexual failure said, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you are a follower of Jesus today, I want you to know you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And the beginning of this journey calls for a humble repentance that you and I, like all believers, submit our opinions, framework, sexual ethics to the lordship of Jesus and lay it at the foot of the cross so it can be put to death. Now, now, now hear me out for this next part. That's the beginning. It's not the end. Because with Jesus, he always uses death, always, always as a springboard for resurrection. Always. And so there's a double-edged sword where it's like hard to let go of the things I brought to the table when I walked into the church. And it might be really hard, like, no, I know what's right. I've, I've walked through some experience. I know exactly, God, what this should look like and how it's supposed to be. And maybe that's out of protection. Maybe that's out of uh, an education system that you dealt with. Maybe there's some, something in there that's going with it. But, but what I want you to know is as you let go of that thing, you also get to let go of the pain. I say, this isn't mine, this is yours. You get to nail that to the cross too. Any shame that you might be walking in, sexual shame, any kind of sexual guilt, any ideas that you're being punished today because of your sexual history, all of the sexual brokenness, every bit of it also gets to be buried and nailed to the cross so that it can be resurrected into new life. And so if you hear that phrase, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, and you're holding your framework like this, that is terrible news. Because I want this, it is my own, I want to keep it. But if you hear that phrase, this isn't my own, I have to let go of what I believe and surrender it to God, but I also get to let go of all of that garbage with it, then there is nothing but good in that statement. You are not your own because he bought you. He took it all. And so something is forming you. I want you to hear that. Shaping you, discipling your thoughts on sexuality. Something is going to be do it. And it is either going to be the things around you unknowingly or it is going to be the Father's hands shaping and saying, hey, let's deal with this. This one's going to hurt. But we got to pull this thorn out. And we got to let this thing heal. And hey, this thing, it's just like, it's like a goofy thing you believe about this, right? Let's go ahead and get rid of that. Let's soften these edges. Let's mold this. And my, my desire today is to start this conversation by saying, where is your heart posture? And are you willing to be molded intentionally into a, a, a type of sexual formation that comes from God, that comes from the Scripture? And two things I want you to do over the next week, and I'll, I'll end with this. We'll pray and get out of here. I know I'm pushing our time a lot. Continue the conversation I started in the reflection. Ask God right now, during this next week, and even write them out if you want, what experiences, teachings, things in our culture, things from the Bible, people that have, are experts and people have pretended to be experts, like almost every youth pastor I've ever met growing up, right? You're not an expert. 
I'm not an expert. That's why I'm doing the, the research to, 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 to come at this with some level of, of um, uh, integrity. And the idea is just this, go through it, exhaust your idea. I think this shaped me, that moment, this conversation, this thing that I read, all of it has been shaping me, and I want you to stop and just pray the honest prayer. God, affirm what is good, get rid of what is bad. Between you and Jesus, affirm what is good, remove what is bad. That is the prayer I'm asking you to pray over the next week. As we move forward, I do think there's some values. I am not gonna hand you a new framework. I am only going to hand you a foundation to build on. But I do think there are some things that we can kind of put at the bottom of that, and then we can figure out where some of these things go together. But it starts by being honest and asking ourselves, do we want to let Scripture, do we want to let God, do we trust God enough to love us in a way that forms our view? God has something to say. Will you trust him to form you in it? Next week, we'll talk about two current sexual ethics that kind of dominate what we're, um, our culture that we're in right now. Um, but over the next few weeks, I want us to move together with sensitivity, with vulnerability, with courage, and with compassion in this conversation on a trajectory, not just for our own healing, but to become a healing, that, a healing community that is sensitive, vulnerable, courageous, and compassion because we are the church and we are meant to be good news in this area. So why have we not been that? May we become a people of reconciliation in the world uh, that is clamoring to make sense of sexuality without the architect of it. Let me pray. So Lord, thank you so much, God, uh, for the attention span today. Um, Lord, I do believe that you have uh, something to say as you had something to say to me, Lord. And I pray, God, as we enter this conversation, we would do this with a level of integrity that would be honoring to all people involved. Lord, but that offers you a seat at the table to help in our formation as we move forward. God, show us how much you love us through this. Surprise us. Surprise us with your grace. Surprise us with your mercy. Surprise us with your subtle corrections of the things that need to be corrected. Lord, we love you. Show your love to us, God. Help us to come at this with an open posture. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen.